0: the XC's top five podcasts for second week in September. We're recording this on a Monday morning, Labor Day morning here in North America, September 7th. Uh, my name is Michael Doyle and I am joined as always by Andrew Crookshank in Toronto. Hey, Andrew, what's going on?
1: Uh, not much. Not much. Nice, uh, long weekend. so
0: Ah, yes. Nice and, nice and relaxed. Hopefully you got some running in. And Alex Sear also in Toronto as well. I see the 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 listener cannot hear cannot see, but you are wearing a singlet. You're ready to run right now.
2: I usually wear singlets before noon every day. I call them (laughs) there's singlets and tank tops, but I don't know. They make me feel they make me feel lean and fast. I don't know.
0: Lean and fast first thing in the morning. And he just all yep. goes to shit by, by lunchtime.
2: <laughs> uh, trying to get before noon
0: <laughs> today, we've got, uh, we've got five good ones on, uh, on tap today, uh, including, uh, trouble, potential trouble with, uh, with WADA, the world anti-doping agency and, uh, the United States and, and whether or not they're gonna participate in the Olympics next year, we'll get into that. A DIY global running relay event thing uh, we're gonna talk about as well, but first we're gonna dig into arguably the biggest story of the weekend and perhaps the most interesting uh, running event that's happened in a little while. Uh, The novel hour on the track records were set we're broken, we're uh, realigned on Friday afternoon, uh, North America time. So Friday evening in Brussels, Belgium, Andrew, tell us a little bit about what the heck the hour on the track record even is and who is contesting these world records.
1: It's a, a pretty rarely contested event, probably because it's, it's just generally grueling. Essentially you're running a, a half marathon on the track. Uh, so there, there aren't that many athletes who actually end up doing it, but the, the concept is that you try and run as many laps around the track as you can in an hour. Um, and in Brussels as part of the, the next kind of diamond league meet, we saw both the men and women contested. Um, so on the men's side, there was Olympic champion Sir Mo Farah headlined the men's field. And, uh, he was aiming for, Haley Geberselassie's previous world record of 21,285 meters. So this was actually the first time Ferris raced since the Chicago marathon in 2019. Uh, as, as we kind of know, he's, he's decided to take a crack at the track again. He's returned from the marathon back to the track and is hoping to, to make it for Tokyo and, and reclaim his, his glory as the Olympic champion. Um, but he's also, he's 37 years old now, so he's not a, uh, not a young guy necessarily anymore. Um, so this was this was kind of a revealing moment for him. It was it was interesting to see whether he still had it or didn't have it. And I mean, it's up for debate. But he ended up winning and he broke the world record. So he ran uh, twenty one thousand three hundred thirty meters, um, which means he was going just faster than fifty nine thirty half marathon pace. So so he was clipping off some pretty quick laps. And then the only competitor to stick with him was, uh, his training partner, Belgium's Bashir Abdi.
0: So
1: we'll talk about that from the the field there. Yeah. Yeah. We'll
0: we'll talk about that and just how competitive or not that was in a second. Um, but tell, tell us a little bit about the women's race, which is actually, I think probably a more compelling race on both on paper and actually in execution.
1: Yeah, definitely. On the women's side, it, it was a huge kind of face off between, um, Safan Hassan, who is the 1500 meter and 10,000 meter world champion. And she holds the mile world record as well. And then the marathon world record holder of Bridget Koskai. So kind of the two opposite ends coming together to face off in this, uh, in the kind of middle ground. Um, and they stuck together for a long time. We're just kind of battling it out. Koskai took the lead kind of towards the end and then Hassan passed her. She just kind of had the kick. Her, speed at the end, one out, so she pulled away um, and ended up also breaking the world record. Uh, The previous record was held by Ethiopia's Deer Toon at 18,517 metres and Hassan ran 18,930 metres. So despite finishing within 50 metres of Hassan, Koski actually ended up getting DQ'd in the end because she ended up stepping on the rail with about seven minutes to go. So I oh, maybe it worked out best, but that would have really sucked if she if she had won and broken the world record only to get DQ'd. so but yeah, interesting races. I, I'd love to get your guys' perspectives on what you thought and how competitive these these actually were.
0: uh yeah, i I'm all for a novel uh, competition, a a cleverly staged uh, unique race. Uh, so I, I was excited about the hour on the track. I I, def- I watched the whole thing, and I did find elements of it compelling. Uh, but I, I'm not super impressed by the performances, I have to say. Although, I'll put an asterisk next to that because I, I actually, in watching this, guys, I wasn't sure whether or not it's easier or harder to run a half marathon, essentially, on the track. That's a huge problem point of debate. I mean, I, I would rather run a road, for example, a road marathon than a track marathon for sure. So a half marathon probably is, uh, also a pretty daunting thing, uh, to stay focused and to stay competitive for that full hour, which, you know, essentially in both cases, very close to the half marathon type performance, obviously a little bit less so on the women's side than the men's side. Um, Mo Farah's performance, I thought it was pretty, uh, pretty pedestrian quite frankly I think it just reveals that although he has some fitness and is an expert tactician on the track uh, because he was not necessarily the fastest guy in the 5,000 10,000 meters and he was still winning uh, world championships and Olympic titles as well but to me this seems like he's just missing that upper gear I felt that his training partner uh, Abdi maybe kind of like gave him the the opportunity to win the race more than actually competed with him in the end. Uh, And you know, it's a nice time. He essentially runs a a 59 and a half half marathon that were a half marathon that puts him 183rd all time on the uh, half marathon time chart, which is good, but not great. Uh, I think Alex, there's probably what 20 guys in the world right now that could have beaten Farah on the track on Friday night. Uh, just showing up and going after it, so I'm not super impressed I, by it.
2: Yeah, no, I'm I'm kind of with you. I mean, all you have to do is look at some other races that happened over the weekend in in Prague at uh, the the um, Adidas event where they tested out their own carbon shoe. Um, you had Kibiwat Candy of Kenya running 58 38, and boom. You know that's already a minute faster than what Farah ran, and I think you're touching a chord there. You, you have to wonder. If it's actually harder to run on the track, see, my thought is that the track, all other things equal is faster. Like you're wearing spikes, you're quicker than on the road, but it's the mental element that gets you. And especially if you're running towards the hour, like, you know, you think a runner, all their lives, uh, you know, runners have been conditioned to run for a distance that's left, not a time that's left. Like think you're, you're 35 minutes. You've been running on a track for 35 minutes, and you have 25 minutes left to go, it's like, how do you quantify that? How do you pace yourself? It's, it's a tough thing. So the thing is, I think the time is impressive. It's not getting me wrong. And like you say, he's a good tactician and you saw him kind of picking it up at the end and you saw, saw shades of, of old fair of 2016, 2012. But after the race I was looking online and there are these talks that resurface again about Mo versus Josh Cheptegei guy in the 10 K because Mo now has a record and Cheptegei guy now has a record, but that's bogus, you know? Okay. So you said it 183rd all time is what Mo ran Cheptegei broke a half or a 5k record that is often contested. It's not even comparable. Um, not taken away from Mo. I mean, you know, what he did requires world-class fitness and mental toughness um he's clearly found himself in a pretty good place after having to cut ties with his coach Salazar uh for good for good so um but is just not on to guy's level and um same thing on the women's side like you look at Hassan's time and you know, people wonder could she have a shot at the marathon world record she beat the marathon world record holder but i don't think that's doable like she Hassan was running 3:10 per k which is a 106 high and that doesn't translate to a two fourteen. Um, so even if Hassan kept that pace and ran like a one hundred six for half, um, I don't think that's as impressive as Koski's two fourteen marathon. I think what happened is Hassan wasn't racing against a two fourteen runner right now. I don't think Koski had her best performance out there.
0: No, I agree with that. And um, Andrew, I t- to reframe this to in, in a more positive light because obviously it was a an interesting uh, idea. And something that I would like to see happen again and more frequently. I mean, these world records, the hour on the track records, were pretty dusty, meaning that they don't really contest this event terribly often. One thing that was kind of cool that they used, a new form of technology that they're obviously testing out right now that I can only imagine we're going to see a lot of in the Olympics, was the um, the ghost racer. They So they took the... It was like a hologram of, uh, on the, in the men's case, it was a hologram of, Gabri, uh, of Gabriel Selassie um, racing against Mo Farah and Abdi on the track. So you could see where the world record, previous world record, was in comparison to where those two guys were pacing it out on the track. Did you find that compelling, interesting, corny? Uh, what was your read on that? Do you want to see that in the Olympics for like every single world record and Olympic record?
1: Yeah, I uh, I kind of enjoyed it. it. It was kind of cool to see. I mean, maybe a little corny. Um, it looked kind of like uh, I don't know, like um, some kind of track and field like computer game from the, the <laughs> early two thousands a little bit. Just to, it was a very kind of robotic looking runner, and, and he, the arm uh, swing was pretty brutal. Yeah, the other thing I noticed was he, he looked like he was flying, like the this this world record runner looked like he was moving. Like he made Mo and those other guys look slow comparatively, even though they are keeping pace. But um, I thought it was kind of fun, like kind of cool to see Uh, easier than just following the lights along the side. So I, you know, I wouldn't hate it if they had that in the the Olympics or the world championships makes it a little more compelling.
0: Yeah. I was actually thinking when we were watching it, that it would be interesting to just toss up a bunch of different holograms. So you could see, you know, you could see where uh, the world record in the half marathon is by com- comparison, uh, or you'd see where Kipchoge's uh, world record or s- sub two effort is in comparison. So, and throw, yeah. throw
2: a hologram of like an average speed runner, yeah, to, to show how fast the other people, the, like the Olympians, actually are. How many like times, real, like four minute K running, 10K. five
0: minute K? Yeah, that's how many times people are being lapped on the track. <laughs> speaking of being lapped on the track, I did some quick math and not to, not to shit on poor Mo Farah really coming off. Like I dislike Mo Farah and I don't, I think he's a fascinating guy and I think he's an an important figure in this generation of running, obviously, and a really exciting one to watch. But I mean uh, if uh, Jeffrey Kemor, who holds the world world record in the half marathon were out running half marathon world record pace on the track would have lapped Farah. So. Yikes. Yikes. Mm. Anyway, moving on to the next topic. (laughs) Topic number two, and this is a strange one. The United States is threatening to pull their funding from WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, because uh, why, Andrew? This is like just, I feel like it's coming out of left field. Explain to us uh, why it is that the U.S. government is threatening WADA.
1: Yeah, this was reported by Reuters. Um, I, and it was a little confusing to get a, a full understanding of it because it <laughs> kind of sounds like a lot of high up people just kind of yelling at each other about different stuff. But um, apparently the U.S. government, backed by the United States Anti-Doping Agency, is threatening to pull its funding from WADA because um, as USADA President Travis Tigert said, WADA is in need of some major reforms. Apparently they, they're upset that... Uh, countries like Russia are allowed to kind of run these state-sponsored doping programs, supposedly. Um, and they want WADA, the U.S. wants WADA to do something about this. They don't want to be spending or paying money to an organization that is kind of letting this, this happen and that athletes can still compete regardless. Because uh, as of right now, the U.S. government paid t- uh, $2.7 million into WADA's $37.4 million budget this year. Which is a it's a decent amount of cash. I think the IOC covers a lot of it as well, um, but according to current water rules, if the US were to pull its funding, all that would technically mean is they can't sit on any water committees. Is that's that's the current ruling. But it sounds like things are people want things to be different, so.
0: Uh, Alex, you know, it sounds like it's a lot of um, sportocratic squabbling at the top as Andrew was was uh, highlighting there, but there are real, very real ramifications that uh, are kind of shaking the Olympic movement at its core right now. Other countries have voiced their concerns about this U.S. government threat, and uh, it could lead to a much bigger deal. WADA is also sort of countering with their own threats as well. What is WADA saying uh, they're going to do if the, if the U S government pulls that, that two and two and change million dollars?
2: Yeah, well they did uh, mention that there's a bunch of other uh, national governments that are concerned over the U S pulling the funding. And yeah, it makes sense. I mean, these governments, they want WADA to consider ruling any government that doesn't contribute to the funding as non-compliant with the World Anti-Doping Code. So, yeah, this could mean that U.S. athletes wouldn't be eligible for the Olympics um, going into an Olympic year. This could get super messy. And also, on the other hand, what happens if a bunch of governments pull their funding out? Like you have, you you find yourself in a situation with the World Anti-Doping Agency perhaps even being weakened and less powerful. And you know, in a time where doping is doesn't seem to be going anywhere that also can't be good so I don't know this this is early and like you say perhaps it's just some it's perhaps some some sportocratic um, <laughs> quabbling but it kind of feels like we're treading close to anarchy i I don't really know
0: it's it's interesting how how fragile all of this is when you really think about it you know the IOC uh what are they they are a bunch of like people in Switzerland that collect money uh, on the backs of those who don't get paid to perform at the Olympics. And then you've got WADA, which has like, you know, $37 million is a good chunk of change, but I I would have guessed what the budget for running the world anti-doping agency would have been. I would have imagined a lot more than $37 million. So, you know, I imagine they're probably trying to uh, stretch every dollar they can and, you know, $2.5 million in funding is obviously a big deal for them. Uh, my understanding also is that WADA has actually come a long way in the last few years. Um, there's the situation in in East Africa, for example, uh, apparently has vastly improved and they're finally establishing a, uh, a strong presence in East Africa for regular testing. Uh, however, Russia is, I guess it's, you know, you're only going to get as far as your member nations in terms of their cooperation. So, if a, a country like Russia or a country like China is not interested in participating or honestly participating, uh, we're going to find ourselves with a broken system, or perhaps we already have a broken system, and maybe that's what the U.S. government is trying to highlight here. Um, yeah, I do find it interesting, though, that you know, politically the 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 U.S. the executive branch the um President Trump is in many ways pro Russia uh politically, very strangely, and yet his administration uh right now is pushing from what I can see a pretty like anti-Russia uh agenda within within the Olympic movement. That's kind of a fascinating thing, Andrew. I wasn't expecting that.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is strange. I, I was also thinking about it like I, I don't know. Two point five. I mean, obviously the US government, especially when you got Trump at the head, isn't gonna be throwing money around at things that he's not interested in. But two point five million dollars to the US government to me seems kind of like small change. It is not uh, yeah. yeah, which which seems strange that they're they're using this as the threat to uh to take it away. But you're right. I, I think it was funny. There was somewhere in the article as well that when wada kind of said you know you can't sit on any of our committees if you leave the u.s was kind of they just shrugged their shoulders and were like we don't care (laughs) so but that would be interesting then if if the u.s leaves and then maybe member countries like as you said like russia and china have have a little more control over over what wada does i i don't know does that change things is that weaken the system i i don't know
0: yeah, we're sort of coming to loggerheads here both uh in the world and also uh obviously uh by extension through sport. So, I think the next year will be very interesting. It's is like a this is a to be continued story for sure. All right, moving on. Topic number 3. A 50-miler in South Carolina was won by an unusual competitor, twelve-year-old Gavin Moore, took the title. Uh, this happened a little bit, a little while ago, Alex. It happened in July. Uh, kind of flew under the radar. A very small race uh, in a in, in a, a rural area in the south. So, and during the pandemic as well, which is another kind of like question mark around it. But tell us a little bit about this extraordinary performance by a twelve-year-old kid winning an ultra
2: yeah this one's pretty insane so gavin moore is in grade seven uh <laughs> if you're trying to do the math that's how old the 12 year old is yeah. um, and not only ran so he ran 50 miles and 80 kilometers and won the race in seven hours 49 minutes 40 seconds so that's per kilometer is 550 so under six minute K's, which is you know quite respectable for anyone for a distance that 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 far for running that far um also translates to 924 per mile. Um, and this was done in, in a heat index of 106 degrees Fahrenheit or yes. 41 Celsius. So, yeah, it was quite a run. Very difficult. Um, the race started at 6 a.m. More just ran away from the field, uh, took the race from the gun, and just beat everyone. Uh, this was a 50-person race yeah, chosen by lottery. Um, so yeah, kind of flew under the radar, but my God, that's crazy.
0: So Andrew, it's a 50 person race. It's over a hundred degrees Fahrenheit. It's humid as, as, as literally being in hell. Uh, what do you think of this performance by this kid?
1: You just have to assume he's got, um, I mean, Michael, you said this before we started recording, but this kid has to have, you know, I would be surprised if this was the kid saying, yes, I want to go out and do this. But, you know, kids like weird things sometimes and you just think that there's, there's some parents out there kind of saying, you know, you need to be the ultimate distance runner. We're going to enter you in this stuff. We're going to get you going. Um, I mean, I don't know. I never had any desire to run that far as a kid. Um, well, neither of you, and, got,
0: neither of you guys, have a desire to run a marathon probably right now, and you're both adults. So,
2: <laughs> no, yeah, no, not a chance. A fifty miler in a in hundred degrees. When I was twelve, I was really big into Pokemon, but <laughs> yeah. never running that much.
0: Yeah, I, at twelve, yeah, I was like comic books and and playing team sports, and I also I ran I ran track and field and cross country as a kid as well. But I not not fifty miles. I think certainly you have to have a special aptitude as a twelve year old to have that level of focus and desire. But like you know, as adults, we choose to run these very long distances uh, for an assortment of reasons. I think most of them are pretty. Uh, personal and psychological in many ways even if you're competitive uh, and or even elite at these distances um, you're doing them there's an internal battle that's going on and and there's a lot of pain and a lot of suffering that happens in a long distance event so i always Andrew, as, as you as you noted like for me there's always a little bit of a red flag that goes up whenever you see like a 10 11 12 year old doing these super long distances. I know people in the altar community will say like, no, no, this is, you know, uh, don't, don't shit on what our community does. And like, you know, this kid is interested in this. And what's the difference between say, you know, this and like a, a, a high school kid running a marathon. And I don't know. I'm not one thing for sure is that your body is not fully formed and developed and your bones are not, uh, strong enough yet at this stage to be doing this sort of thing. Um, But I will say this, it's a damn good performance, especially at that temperature, like a 50 miler at a hundred degrees, even just finishing would be very hard. So that's, that's good. It's better than a, uh, a world-class runner that we're going to talk about in a couple of minutes.
1: Yeah. I, I was yeah. curious though with this, as you kind of said, I mean, these are these are kids who, who are doing it before they've gone through puberty and stuff. they you know, their bodies haven't filled out yet. And whether it's kind of like like has similar effects to like a, a woman's gymnastics, where it's these these 14-year-old girls are the ones who are the best in the world, but they end up then like fusing the, the joints and they don't get any taller and stuff like that. And it has like serious effects on on their growth and bone structure and stuff later on. And I, I don't know, I wonder whether it's a, a similar effect to these kids who, who go out and run these, these marathons and ultra marathons when they're 10, 11, 12 years old. But.
2: There, I, I think, and, and okay, I get the red flags as well because, you know, we've seen some of these runners kind of come into the mainstream and then suffer a lot of like physical mental trouble afterwards. I'm thinking of Alana Hadley, um 16 year old American runner who ran two forty-one and kind of, made the headlines on on running websites for for a while back in 2013 and then struggled afterwards and you know there are a few other examples but sometimes i wonder if if it's a bit of the american perspective that um young runners shouldn't be chasing running and and again i get the red flags but i kind of think of the contrast between american running culture and what we hear from kenyan running culture where um the the upbringing seems to be just filled with running you know people run to school they run back they start running at a young age and by the time they reach 20 they have so many more miles in the legs than american runners that it's you know it's it's an inherent advantage um i think you know if uh, if gavin continues to run it could be an interesting case study like what if he does stay healthy what if he does get into high school with a ridiculous base it could be really fun to follow but again i mean i hope this training is kind of, you know, supplemented with there's done well and supplemented with strength work. I hope it's something that he enjoys to do. Um, yeah, it'd be, it'd be, it'd be fun to follow his high school career.
0: Yeah. Okay. So we'll, we'll, we'll hopefully do that. Hopefully we'll hear of, uh, Gavin more, uh, again in the future, uh, cause that's a pretty, pretty great performance, but yeah, I, I do hope that he's, he actually is enjoying this whole process and that it's, it's his choice. Uh, that's, that's what I hope for this kid. All right, moving on. Topic number four. There is a new relay in town. In fact, it's an old relay, but it's being refashioned for the pandemic age, fortunately or not a pretty compelling concept. Uh, the speed project, which some people may be familiar with because it was previously a, an LA to Las Vegas uh, relay race that took place annually, uh, rebranded or reorganized itself as a global uh, virtual event over this weekend, and took place well everywhere around the world. I believe forty-ish countries. Alex, tell us a little bit about the what what they've called the Speed Project DIY.
2: Yeah. So you can see it online as TSP DIY as well. And it's, it's cool. So yeah, thousand athletes from 40 countries this year uh, competed to see in relay teams to see who can run the farthest in those 31 hours and 15 minutes, which is like you said, the standing record for any teams in in recent uh, years, their run between Los Angeles and Las Vegas from LA to Vegas. Um, and uh, the race this year actually started on Saturday, like last Saturday, at 4 a.m. Pacific time. And the whole thing could be followed via stream on the, the Speed Project, the TSP website. Um, and the results aren't posted. Teams are responsible to send their own results in. Um, and it's a cool thing. It's, it's a cool concept because it seemed like they were determined to support the running community um, with all of 2020's races being canceled and the morale being generally down, uh, so this year they made the race global and gave all donations and proceeds back to the running community. And up until now, they've raised just over sixty thousand dollars. So that's that's no small amount.
0: Uh, Andrew, I noticed that one of the uh, the major monikers that was being used for the this event was a. Uh, Hashtag no rules. Uh, how do you run a how do you run a competition when, with without a rule set? Explain this to me a little bit.
1: Yeah, I think that's more of a uh, some kind of marketing mojo to uh, to kind of be like we're we're the rebellious ones. <laughs> Hashtag no rules because. My understanding is it doesn't mean, uh, you know, you can pull a a Boston Marathon cheater and and hop on a bus or (laughs) the subway or something and take it to the finish line. Um, My my understanding is that it it is still you have to be running, but you can kind of choose your own route. Um, So because it's happening globally, runners can run wherever they want. You could run around a track for 31 hours if you wanted to. But it just has to be the distance you cover in that 31 hours. So ideally, you pick a good route that isn't covered with hills. But uh, that's on each team. Uh, Apparently, there's also no limit on the number of runners on your team, was my understanding. I didn't see any numbers on that. But they said you could also even run it solo if you wanted. So (laughs) you could have been a a one-man or one-woman team out there running for 31
0: so like the the on
1: and 15 minutes which would have been pretty grueling um but
0: yeah the the so the the smartest strategy from a competitive perspective would have been to like line up dozens and dozens of runners to run like in very tight 10 15 minute intervals or even shorter than that but obviously that would be like a logistical nightmare my guess is that mo m- many of the teams Went with probably what, like a team of like maybe six or eight or 10 friends and rotated through and ran a few times each. Alex, you know, somebody who actually participated in the event.
2: Yeah. Last night I talked to my friend, Jordan Collison, who did, uh, that's what they did. They had a team of six and they kept going an hour at a time. So for him, you know, that meant he ended up having like four or five rotations. So by the end of the of the relay, he had run four or five hours all you know, averaging pretty quick pace because they were trying to be competitive at it, and uh, yeah, I think he was pretty tired. We had supper last night, and he wasn't saying all that much. So <laughs> I, I think it was it was a bit it was a bit a lot. Um, but uh, I think really w- what you would do is you try to limit that like on and off thing. Like that's tough. You know, you run a hard hour, you sit around, wait a couple hours, like say five or six, then you go again. That's that's tough. You can't really get some good sleep in for thirty thirty one hours. So. Yeah. It's, it's uh, there's a lot of strategy that goes into
0: it. Yeah. I've done, I did a similar event to this, uh, well, several years ago now, I'm not sure exactly how many, almost 10 maybe. And it was, yeah, we, we each ran some stupid number of times in in about 30 ish hours of it's four or six times each and, you know, eight, 10, 11 kilometers each time, and man, by the third fourth time you've got to get up and run at some odd hour and really push hard and try to hit like, I guess the equivalent of something along the lines of half marathon or 30 K pace. It's just grueling. And I do love the concept of it. Like the idea that they had this event that physically took place from LA to Vegas every year, obviously gets curtailed this year and they flip it on its head and they say, uh, let's, everyone kind of do an imagined version of that. Here's the fastest uh, that someone's ever done that distance in for our, for our relay, you go run that amount of time and see how far you get. Uh, it's a, like a pretty cool conceit. I, I'm not sure how well it worked as a viewing experience over the course of 31 hours, but it was nice that they offered a, a, a look inside to see how each team was, was doing and, had kind of like this like virtual, uh, check in. And, uh, yeah, I guess it was entertaining to that degree. Certainly if I was competing, I would be, uh, I would have been watching it more closely, but uh neat idea. Um, I, I hope, I hope they never have to do that again and have to, and, and get the actual physical event going in the, in the upcoming years. But perhaps this sort of creativity is something that we need to keep in mind for future events. Mm. All right, on to the last topic of the day. Fifth and final topic of the day. Oh, yeah. I'm happy to see Ryan Hall back in the news. Uh, Andrew, Ryan Hall, uh, former uh, U.S. Olympian, and I guess you're always an Olympian if you were once an Olympian, uh, all-time great American marathoner, bodybuilder extraordinaire he sent out a curious tweet the other day uh tell us a little bit about what ryan hall's been up to
1: yeah yeah everyone's uh, <laughs> america's darling um it was actually his, his wife sarah hall also a, a great distance runner a fast marathoner uh she tweeted out a photo of ryan he was in a gym, just ripping bicep curls. <laughs> and they looked, I didn't see the exact number on the weight, but they looked pretty heavy. Um, he's, he's a big dude now. Uh, I, I know, um, I think it was Runner's World, wrote a story back in 2016 that like after retiring from racing in the span of a couple months, he put on like 40 pounds of muscle or something like that. So he's a, he's a pretty big dude now. Um, but, you know, he was also at one time a sub 205 marathoner and here his wife, Sarah tweets out this photo saying, this is what Ryan's doing right before running an ultra marathon. He's got this 43 mile ultra marathon that he's going to do the next morning. And he's done zero running, like no training. The only training he's been doing is just ripping these bicep curls in the gym. Um, So then Sarah, Sarah added another tweet after that saying, apparently after Ryan finished this 43 mile ultra marathon, his plan was to hit up leg day in the, uh, Brutal. in the gym after that. So, <laughs> Whoa. um, I think we, we did get some, some numbers on, uh, on what he, what he actually ran. I don't know, Alex, you, uh, you saw that, eh?
2: Yeah. So hall ended up running 12 hours, 47 minutes for 43 miles. And I'm terrible at just. Doing the intuitive map when it comes to ultras because it's so long, but that ends up being about 11 minutes per kilometer, um, and that sounds slow because, well, compared to Gavin Moore, it is. <laughs> the 12 year old was running about, you know, twice. Moore was twice as fast as, as Hall um, for a longer time, um, but also the we can't do too hard on Hall. I mean, the um, the funny thing about it is straight up how he looks right now and seeing him run the transformation is insane like Andrew you said 40 pounds I think it's more you look at his his Instagram's hilarious because his bio is like fastest half marathoner and marathoner of all time and then all his photos like this guy in a tank top like and yeah ripping bicep curls doing bench press shaking a protein shake just it's like a it's like a Clark Kent Superman transformation it's pretty insane and like I kept waiting to get his result and like, it's not a fast running result, but he still finished the ultra and it kind of brings into like the basic baseline fitness question. Me and my friends always talk about it. Once you get to a certain point of fitness, like an incredibly high level, it's like you've secured a baseline and no matter what you do, even if you become the Hulk, you never become totally unfit. You guys think that's true? No, no.
0: No, I don't because I've met some Olympians that are terribly overweight and, in awful shape and, and, you know, as they've aged and just totally given up on sports. So, and you look at them and you think to yourself, could you run a 5k right now? <laughs> Probably not. Or you're like, I mean, I guess if you're horribly broken, like that's a different story altogether, but <laughs> I don't know, Andrew, what do you think? Do you think that, do you believe in Alex's uh, baseline fitness for life theory? I,
1: I think that's very much so a, a, like a, a varsity athlete mentality. Cause I a hundred percent have the same mentality as you, Alex. And, and I think it's like out of a fear that we're going to all become fast <laughs> someday. So I, I, in my mind, it's like, yeah, I, I can, no matter what, no matter how a ship again, I'll be able to come out and run a sub 20 minute 5k, you know, rain or shine or whatever. But I, I think in reality, Michael, I, I agree more with you. I've I've heard tales of uh people who've given up running for good and who are great and then they come back years later and they struggle to even run for fifteen minutes. So
0: I, I mean I do I will say that like it's totally impressive and weird that Hall is able to like literally muscle himself through a 43 mile ultra. And I imagine that his ultra probably wasn't on super flat land and at an easy zero uh feet altitude i imagine i I mean i know the area where he lives in in the u.s is a pretty demanding place to to run so um pretty impressive if he indeed did zero 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 running for a long period of time and then just went out and Mashed out this ultra. That's, I guess, kind of impressive, especially given the fact that the guy's jacked now, so he's carrying a lot of upper body weight. Um, You got to give it
2: to—he's—he's. If nothing else, he's a disciplined guy. You have, like, you have to give him that. He becomes the fastest marathoner in American history. He decides to completely take a one eighty and like get and like you don't just get jacked. You have to do that properly. There's a whole lot of stuff you have to do, and and then he goes and runs an ultra like these are all things that you think would be very hard to achieve i'm sure very little but very few marathoners could go there and take a 180 and, and build a bunch of muscle this is a disciplined guy
0: the question that only ryan hall can answer is i guess is why why do this i mean i understand that he is his wife is, is sarah is running at a world-class level uh still and will be racing in london uh in in a month or so and is one of the best American distance runners uh, competing right now. And he obviously has this huge history and I mean, he was a really good runner all the way through high school and at Stanford and, and then obviously as a, as an uh, elite full-time runner. So it must be hard to let go, but like, why run an ultra? Why not just, I don't know, go run a 5k or something, man. Like <laughs> good for you, I guess. Anyway, that's our show for this week. I, um, I'm i now going to go out and run a 43 mile race and see how it feels. Uh, thanks for, for joining me, guys. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter, thexc.substack.com and follow us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at dxcorg.